Welcome to Connectify Conversations. My name is Devin Simonson, and I'm the CMO at Connectify. Our mission is to share the experience, expertise, and insights from gaming industry leaders that comes from years navigating the complexities and impact of compliance. On this episode of Connectify Conversations, we have with us the former CEO of MGM Resorts, Jim Marin. Hello there, my name is Jim Marin. And the Business Development Director at Connectify, Sham Tapshi. My name is Sean Topshi. Thanks for joining us today and remember to like and subscribe to the podcast on any platform you prefer to listen to. You can also learn more anytime at connectify.com. That's K-I-N-E-C-T-I-F-Y.com. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jim. Thank you very much. It's an honor. Seeing as we are primarily going to be discussing compliance with you today, Jim, especially in your capacity as CEO, it feels right that we start with communication. So Jim, what are the hallmarks of great communication between compliance officers and the C-suite? Well, in my experience at MGM, compliance, which was always a incredibly important department, has evolved very uh, profoundly from being a segmented part of the corporate operations into an integral aspect of company strategy uh, and in company initiatives. This actually started before my time. It started with my predecessor, Terry Lanny, who made compliance a priority. I guess like anything else in corporate America, um, it's the tone at the top is really critical to the culture of compliance. And in our case at MGM, we made sure that we invested heavily in the compliance department, found the best possible talent uh, to run that uh, department. And in my case, as the CEO, I insisted on meeting with the compliance officer twice a month. Um, and the compliance officer was also invited to all the important uh, corporate initiative meetings that we had to di discuss strategy. And oftentimes, uh, whether it was a development opportunity or an M&A or a corporate finance opportunity, uh, compliance had a, a view as to what we should do in that and critical to get compliance involved early on rather than after the fact. So communication is critical. Um, was very collaborative. Um, I have a very strong personal relationship with the current uh, head of compliance at MGM Resorts. He's a good friend. And uh, I think that it's critical that the whole organization knows that compliance is not a just must have, it is a integral part of the corporate operations of any fine organization. Now, I, I found it interesting what you said there, Jim, and obviously it's, it's hats off to, to you and in MGM that you had such a frequent communication with the compliance department. Like you said, you met with them, you know, at least twice a, twice a month. Um, 
Now, in a lot of smaller gaming organizations, whether it's single property or, or smaller properties where you don't have necessarily somebody at that CCO or, you know, SVP, VP level where it's where it's a compliance manager, I, I found that they've had a harder time having that proactive seat at the table, having, um, you know, that engagement with with leadership and being brought in early on into conversations, whether it's, you know, M&A expansion or, or new products. Um, you know, I, I guess for you, what would you say to those compliance officers? How how might it be better to try to start to open up those communication channels or how do you communicate in a way that, uh, you know, leadership responds to you and, and wants to start inviting you to those conversations and, you know, sees the, the value in, in what you bring to the table as compliance? I think the critical message here is elevate, elevate rapidly. Um, from a standpoint of how compliance departments are structured, some of them report into the general counsel, some report to the CFO, um, very few report directly to the CEO. Um, and um, that was the way I had it at MGM. I thought it was important that compliance reported directly to me. But uh, to the degree that a compliance officer feels that his or her voice is not being heard, um, they need to elevate rapidly and going right to the board, whether it's a tribal organization going to uh, top leadership there or a single property. I can assure you um, that that communication will not be ill uh, received, that uh, boards want to know what compliance has to say. It's sometimes a shame that uh, some of the strongest messages the most important voices are not heard because uh, they feel like they're pigeonholed in a reporting chain and they're not getting their message across to the most senior leadership of an organization such as the board of directors or the CEO. So I would suggest elevate, elevate rapidly, elevate fearlessly, make sure um, that you're getting your message across to the most senior people. I think some organizations or compliance groups within organizations may be reluctant at times to approach leadership with compliance related issues and concerns. Whether it's fear or whatnot that makes them reluctant, it's important for companies to provide access that's frictionless. Yeah, and, and as you know, most every company has a hotline. If they don't, shame on them. <laughs> uh, so there are ways of elevating to audit, to a board, uh, to outside audit, in ways that uh, protect um, the identity of uh, the individual. Um, but really compliance, I, I, I just would like to make everyone's, uh, just have their minds at ease that their message is gonna be undoubtedly well received by the board because they really wanna know what's happening. And if they feel frustrated in their chain of command, they need to elevate rapidly. No, that's 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 great advice. Um, I think I think one thing that that we can as as compliance officers end up sometimes doing too much. I know I've been guilty of it, especially early on. Is um, you know you you kind of as a compliance officer you you look for issues really right, and and so sometimes your your message seems to frequently be uh, the sky is falling, and and I think sometimes that can kind of 
cut off those those communication lines or cause those communication lines to be more ineffective if that's the only message you're ever bringing into the table. Um, you know, are, are there other ways of communication or, or other ways that compliance officers can look at things so that they're seen as a bit more of a, a business partner and a business enabler and, um, you know, not, not the kid who's pulling the fire alarm every time? Well, you know, any, any organization worth its salt is trying to grow, grow for the benefit of its stakeholders, for its employees, for its owners, for its partners. And in the gaming industry, as you know, certainly here in the US and it's same is true around the world, we just can't build resorts anywhere we want to. We generally have to win um, RFPs. We have to win the right to operate in a certain jurisdiction. And very big part of winning um, and a part of the MGM success, I believe, in winning many of these licenses is their incredibly strong reputation for corporate responsibility, community engagement, and compliance. Um, there were more than, more than a handful of people when I was bidding for a large license in the state of Maryland that uh, were very, very, very skeptical of a gaming company coming into that state. Uh, and we turned their minds around. Um, and a lot of it had to do what we do in a community, but also a lot of it had to do with um, our, our core values around compliance and ethics and integrity. Uh, and it was our compliance and ethics areas that I think really won the day. And there are many people that came up to me and said, you know, this is the kind of company that I'd love to have in our state. This is the kind of company I'd love to have my daughter work for someday. And a lot of that had to do with compliance. So I, I view compliance as a very key driver of growth. Um, it's not just uh, protecting assets, which is obviously a vital function. It's actually growing existing assets and allowing organizations to potentially grow outside of their current footprint into new markets. Um, we use compliance very strongly in that area and uh, with great success, not only in states like Maryland, for example, but in Massachusetts, in New York, and several others. And so I view compliance and certainly the compliance area at MGM views itself as a business center, not simply a cost center. Jim, what do you suggest for gaming organizations that maybe don't have a strong culture for supporting a focus on compliance? I would suggest that a compliance officer suggests to management to establish a compliance committee. Um, a compliance committee um, is now required uh, in certain states such as Nevada. Um, MGM led the way there actually to have the first ever totally independent uh, compliance committee mem members made up entirely of independent uh, committee members. But I think any organization, small or large, should have a compliance committee. And that's very distinct from an audit committee where a lot of these functions typically reside. So I think that that's an easy suggestion that uh, should be fairly benign and well received that we should have a compliance committee um, made up of perhaps a mix of uh, internal and external individuals um, in their charge uh, with, with the overarching governance of compliance within an organization. I think 
that elevates it to the right level uh, at the board level. It shows uh, real commitment to it. And certainly it would help uh, that entity with its own regulators. Uh, the regulators would appreciate, you know, that level of, of engagement at a senior level, um, whether it's in a tribal organization or in commercial gaming. So within that committee, I know you said there, are, you would suggest some external members. Um, what kind of individuals do, do you typically see that are external that would sit on those committees? Generally speaking, you'd find uh, attorneys that uh, have a regulatory background um, that uh, have retired or recently considering retired. There are former regulators that have also sat on committees such as that. Um, be, it would be people, uh, we've, we've had people from law enforcement also sit uh, on these committees. It would be men and women that have a, a, that are steeped in compliance, whether it's from their professional activities such as uh, regulatory attorneys or in their jobs such as being regulators themselves. It really is, is vital um, brain trust to have in an organization that is very available. There are a lot of these uh, men and women out there that have served in in uh, in, in committees uh, or on gaming commissions or gaming control boards or gaming uh, law firms that would be happy to serve. Thank you. That's a that, honestly that's a that's a great piece of advice, and um, I, I hope it's something we we start to see more even even at some of the, the smaller, um, you know, casinos, enterprises that we work with. So I think that that outside view sometimes, you know, as that compliance officer who's who's struggling to, to build that culture of compliance, um, getting that independent party who just, even though they may have the same message, it may just be, you know, better received um, coming with the years of experience and, and the background and the subject matter expertise that that external party would have. So uh, no, it's a great piece of advice. To shift the topic a little bit, Jim, what are some of the things from a compliance and risk standpoint that kept you up at night? What kept Jim Marin uneasy? I'm only now um, catching up on some of the things that, uh, <laughs> that I, I feel like I, I missed out on for many years. But, um, you know, look, you know, we MGM is global. Um, and uh, the further you away from the corporate office, you know, the more you're concerned about compliance risk. Uh, MGM operates two large resorts in uh, the SAR Macau. Macau is, you know, very dynamic market. Uh, it's going through a severe contraction right now uh, post COVID, um, but that was a compliance area we spent a lot of time on to ensure that you know, our set of, of core values and, and level of compliance was deployed uh, in a foreign jurisdiction um, with a different listed company that that entity is public, uh, listed on the Hong Kong exchange, has its own board, has its own audit and compliance committees, and making sure that compliance communication was seamless as possible between two public entities MGM also spun off its real estate uh, in a company I created called MGP. Uh, it in turn uh, had its own committees, of course. So making sure that compliance was woven into 
the fabric of all the public entities that comprise of MGM. That would be, you know, one um, key area. The second, uh, and this is with us now for the rest of our lives, is cyber. Uh, cyber as as a threat uh, is ongoing, uh, and certainly from a compliance perspective, is is significant. Um, so I just put that out on the table as you know, always present. Um, more recently. I'd say sports betting and iGaming is, you know, an area where I'd be focusing a lot of my time if I were the CEO today. It's relatively new post PASPA um, for the operators here in the United States and new means less experience in regulating and holding uh, operations accountable for compliance. And so there have been some missteps, uh, fortunately, somewhat minor in the industry so far from a compliance perspective, but that would be an area where I am sure the major operators or certainly anyone that wants to get into sports betting or iGaming should focus a considerable amount of time because when you go into new areas, um, you're just a little less experienced in the operations of those areas and, and things can be can be overlooked to the detriment of your compliance committee and your compliance effort. Now I, I'm, I'm noticing a, a recurring theme of, of you know compliance committee um, really being a, an effective part of the effort, you know with with the new risks that you know come with iGaming and, and sports betting and you know all, all of the things wrapped up in that like geolocation and account takeovers, chargebacks. You know, is is there a need even for smaller organizations to to kind of branch off and, and have a separate committee that's focused on the iGaming and sports betting? Where you know, even though it's a much more limited expertise pool, you 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 try to pull in individuals who that is their focus, or is is it still wrapped up all into one committee for both the land based and the iGaming? You know, I think that's a very fine idea. I think that would be something that I would advocate for um, their specialized skills, um, their experiences that are unique to that field that wouldn't necessarily be resident in a traditional bricks and mortar gaming operation. And so, yes, I think that's a very fine idea. And I would, I would, if that was brought to me, I would, I would jump on that chance. What strategies have you seen that help compliance groups within organizations sell themselves to the C-suite in order to make sure that they have the resources that they need? And I'm pretty sure 90% of compliance departments would say they don't have enough resources. So um, I'm sure a lot of people will be interested in hearing, you know, what are what are compelling arguments to, to try to get there? Well, you know, here's, I think, the, the quintessential dichotomy between, you know, what exists on a day-to-day basis and what is state-of-the-art at the board level, in my opinion. Oftentimes, departments like compliance are viewed, you know, purely through the lens of being a cost center, trying to manage those costs and the budgeting process. The compliance departments, as I said, are reporting generally not to the CEO. Um, in many organizations, it's to the CFO or to perhaps risk management or uh, the general counsel or, or someone in the legal department. And they're lumped into all the other um, departments that serve as shared service functions uh, for an organization, large or small. And money is tight always, and budgeting is always difficult. But if you were to survey 
any board member of any company, large or small, and you said to that board member, would you like to uh, save a little money on compliance or save a little money on marketing? Would you like to save a little money on compliance or maybe hold off on that new IT deployment? Would you like to save a little money on compliance or um, do you want to defer the renovation of that restaurant? No one's gonna wanna save money on compliance at the board level. It is just so utterly vital uh, to the health, well-being, and reputation of an organization um, that board members, I think, universally would want that money to be spent in that area. So there, this is this is such a a frustrating um, predicament. I know that many compliance people find themselves in is that they should know that the, the most important people at an organization, the directors of the company would want the money to be spent and yet sometimes it's not. And oftentimes, you know, money is generally spent because compliance departments are under-resourced in terms of people. Um, but now uh, through emerging technologies, technology now uh, can be, if used properly, an incredibly important resource to invest that actually could be a cost savings ultimately to reduce headcount in some compliance departments or minimally reallocate labor from um, a traditional compliance role into other audit functions or other finance functions, which also provides some really wonderful growth opportunities for people within an organization. So I, I guess I'd go back to how I started this podcast and talk in terms of elevate and elevate quickly. Um, I would really advocate for um, investing in technology um, and investing in those type of resources um, in showing that this actually could be not only a cost savings, if you invest properly in technology as we re reallocate labor, which has traditionally been a very analog department, as we know, the more we can digitize this, um, the more consistency we'll get in, in compliance results and uh, the money that would be saved can be deployed into other growth areas. And I think a good compliance officer can make a very strong business case that investing particularly in technology um, would be a good return on investment as a company can reallocate resources into other growth areas. Making a proper business case um, when, it, when it comes to investing in these technologies I think it can be a, a little difficult for a compliance officer right now, you know, particularly because some of the technology is so new, you know, obviously ourselves at Connectify, we're a fairly new company. There's not as much, you know, almost case study uh, around these emerging technologies to, to say how they do save, you know, logically you think about it and it makes sense, you know, Hey, if I can automate the filing process, if I can, you know, automate how suspicious activity is surfaced and drown out the noise, it'll save money. But a lot of the case study isn't still there right now. So, so how does one, you know, formulate that argument? Um, and, and do they just kind of take that logical approach of, hey, we, we know this should make sense and we have X amount of people doing this right now and we should be able to cut down, you know, without that kind of that case study and that background knowledge to, to back what you're trying, um, you know, to convince your your board or CEO or CFO of? Yeah, it's, it's difficult. I would say that 
you know, in, in any emerging area, you're, you're a little bit bruising edge. You don't need to be bleeding edge. And certainly you don't want to be bleeding edge in compliance. We don't want to take any risks um, with compliance at all. And so it, there's just a natural inclination to be risk adverse when, when thinking about making changes of any type to a compliance protocol. But um, I think the case can be made that in an evolving, rapidly dynamic industry like gaming, uh, it is incumbent upon all managers, whether they're in operations or in finance or in compliance, to find ways to innovate. Uh, if those companies that don't innovate, well, those companies are going to be left behind. And um, I think that compliance should view their operations just the same way as any other part of an organization. How do we innovate uh, to improve financial health, well-being, and future of an organization. And one of the ways of doing that um, is by modernizing compliance protocols, and I think using technology in order to do that. Compliance is often left out of long-term planning, five to 10 years out per se. And in what ways can compliance groups become a bigger part of those conversations? You know, that's a really provocative question. Um, and I, I wish I had uh, enough knowledge to to share with you what the mindset is in many compliance departments as it relates to the longer term financial and strategic direction of a company. I I think that you know at MGM, as I say, when we're doing the five year plan, compliance is very integral in that five year plan, and whether we're establishing first the SWOT analysis to establish where we are. Uh, what we need to work on, what our weaknesses are, where do we need to uh, exploit some of our growth opportunities and our strengths, um, you know, how to maximize the opportunities that the company has. Um, compliance is very much a part of that. And that is a long, that's long-term strategic planning um, that results in offsites, it results in being involved in uh, a lot of the field efforts uh, and, and building up a strategic plan from the ground up. Um, I'm not sure that it happens in every organization. And my guess is it's viewed more tactically than strategically. Um, and to the extent that uh, compliance is viewed as, you know, a tactical operation, we might be missing the boat here in terms of thinking about how to look at compliance strategically. Um, rather than looking at a compliance plan and a calendar and a budget and a protocol and checking the boxes on the uh, key elements of compliance, we get involved, elevate at least once a year in the strategic planning process that might lead to more acceptance around using say, for example, technology for compliance uh, as that technology emerges and case studies evolve to improve uh, the confidence of the business case. It could include really studying best practices around the globe to find compliance protocols that are more effective uh, and more streamlined um, and perhaps more in keeping with contemporary risk. Um, and uh, it could involve you know, better interaction with compliance and the growth areas of a company as it looks to develop into new markets. You know, that, that actually takes me back a, a few years to something that I, that I haven't really seen 
sense that too many organizations and, and I think kind of ties right into this is, you know, Caesars had just, you know, come out with their new mission and vision statement and, you know, they had their their five-year strategy that was, you know, laid out. And I, I imagine Tim Donovan at, at that general counsel level was heavily involved in those conversations. But then as a legal and compliance department, we actually took a couple of days where we, you know, laid out that whole company-wide um, vision and strategy and, and you know, a, along that like five-year block or whatever it was, um, all those goals that they had along there, we saw how did compliance align? And then we kind of talked about what, what our goals are strategically, which direction did we want to go? And, and how does it align with uh, the company's goals? Um, I think that's something that, that if we do as a legal department or a compliance department, and then probably take it back to leadership just just to get that that buy-in and, and that you know that that full alignment and understanding of what everybody's doing that that could create um a truly effective planning process that that really gets compliance involved i don't know what you think about that but it just popped in my head and i thought it was really interesting well i think that's you know i've always admired caesars and uh, that sounds like you know a great process um we emulated that as well at MGM uh, and, you know, getting, getting away, you know, just generally getting away on, on offsites, really vital, you know, getting people out, out of their comfort zone, out of their offices, you know, out of their departments, mingling with people. Um, I can't tell you how many good ideas come out of offsites in general, but um, for, for departments such as compliance, to take on uh, the initiatives and the strategy of a company and then go back and think about what it means for them, what it means for that uh, part of the organization is really a very critical uh, part of uh, the growth of any, any good division. Regulators are a major component of the gaming industry and especially compliance. What does it look like to be proactively creating effective relationships with regulators? Yeah, my, my experience with regulators uh, has has been it's been long. <laughs> I've been I've been in the industry a long time, um, and uh, I'd have to say candidly, MGM's relationship with regulators was only okay uh, when I joined the company, um, and I'd have to credit uh, the current uh, general counsel who I promoted into that role, John McManus, into really elevating. The communication and the relationship between uh, MGM and its regulators, which now number in the hundreds all around the world, um, and uh, it, MGM's chief compliance officer Steve Martino is is a former regulator himself um, and knows exactly what it means to have good levels of communication with regulators. I find that uh, too many. Uh, C-suite executives view regulators as a necessary evil that they use, um, the, you know, minimal amount of their time thinking about. Um, they prepare for board meetings or commission meetings. They prepare for their personal licenses, um, but they don't think through uh, the role a regulator plays in a jurisdiction as as uh, wholesomely, fulsomely as they should. And uh, I think that's a shame. Um, 
some of the best relationships I developed over my couple decades in the business were with regulators uh, all around the country. These are men and women that are passionate about their states or their jurisdictions overseas. They have incredible knowledge. Uh, they're willing to share that knowledge. Um, they don't get to talk to C-suite executives uh, as often as I think they should or that they would like. Um, and I don't think boards actually interact often enough with regulators either. They hear about regulatory activity. Uh, they have their own personal experiences going through licensing, but I think there should be much more communication and relationship between operators uh, in whatever form it is, not just bricks and mortar gaming, but in iGaming, sports betting, uh, and regulators. Um, and over-communicate is really the key. Uh, it is always best to over-communicate. Uh, I think that the best companies in this field have, you know, deep, now deep uh, relationships with regulators. There's a healthy degree of respect. There's a proper amount of uh, division uh, between an operator and a regulator. Uh, the right relationship was one of mutual respect. Um, it's not necessarily um, as friendly sometimes as other relationships because there needs to be that, that very strong wall between the regulator and the operator to ensure that everything is being done in the most uh, pristine and business-like manner. But there, there are ample opportunities to get to know regulators better through uh, conferences, through uh, industry-sponsored events, through state-sponsored events. And I encourage uh, my colleagues as operators to spend more time with the regulators. You'll learn more and ultimately you're doing your company a great service if you have a better relationship with them. And and I, I think right now is is probably as a, a good a time as any, if if not the best time, really to start engaging in those relationships. I mean, it, it could be my limited exposure that I had previously, but you know now with with the onset of iGaming and sports betting and it going live in so many jurisdictions, um, it it just seems like that relationship between the industry and the regulators has been more collaborative than ever because to to an extent we're all we're all figuring it out together and so it would it would be a waste to squander that opportunity where there's there's such a unique chance to to really build um long-lasting and, and healthy relationships with with regulators that you know ultimately are to the benefit of you and your company that's very perceptive um i agree with that wholeheartedly and i've seen it happen especially in the sports area. It wasn't long ago that Las Vegas was considered, you know, a, 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 a territory of hostility as it relates to sports. Um, and it wasn't long ago that sports leagues would not view Las Vegas favorably in terms of having relationships with other gaming companies or even in the town itself. And Las Vegas has gone in my career from being a sports desert to a sports capital. Uh, and I'm immensely proud of uh, the role that I had in bringing uh, the Golden Knights to Las Vegas and the, through the construction of T-Mobile, helping bring the Raiders to Las Vegas um, and helping the financing of Allegiant Stadium. 
bringing uh, my beloved Las Vegas Aces, uh, national champion women's basketball uh, uh, professionals that just won the uh, national championship and more to come. Um, and those leagues and gaming companies are like regulators and gaming companies. We're learning as we go. And as long as there's a healthy degree of respect and trust and honesty and clarity and transparency, then as these industries evolve and emerge and as sports betting becomes larger and there's more of a blend of sports betting with sports operators, with sports uh, owners in leagues, I think you're going to see a lot more collaboration between regulators and, and the leagues and the operators as we're all learning this together. Uh, on, on a personal note, congratulations on the Aces. Um, that That's pretty awesome to see, um, you know, uh, the team coming to the city and, and doing doing that well so, so quickly, you know, under, under the coach Becky Hammond. I'm a Spurs fan, so I was incredibly excited to see that. Also, thank you for helping bring the Raiders. Um, lifelong fan, although it was devastating to be at the, the Cardinals game. I'm sure in the long run, I'll be very happy for it. Yeah, we've had a we've had a tough start to the season, but uh, last night was another uh, yesterday was another brutal loss uh, of missed opportunities. But a great owner and Mark Davis and great organization, and uh, I'm 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 rooting for him here in town. Me too. Me too. Um, one thing I wanted to to touch on, you know, I, I know we were talking about regulators here, and and this. This may be a little more isolated to AML, it may not, but um, relationships I found useful to develop also were with law enforcement and obviously not to step on toes of um, security or, or tribal gaming commissions or anything like that, um, but but developing a relationship with law enforcement from that anti-money laundering standpoint, um, one, you know, it's the, the whole reason we kind of exist as AML is to, is to help law enforcement catch the bad actors. But I, I found that it helps um, build the relationships with with your external regulators as well, because they will, you know, they will vouch for you when those those BSA examinations come. Um, you know, in, in particular, I was able to develop a good relationship with the Riverside FBI and one of the first things my BSA examiner asked me when they came from the IRS was, what is your relationship like with law enforcement? And, and so to be able to, uh, you know, tout that and, and have those people that I've actively been working with um, created a lot more friendly narrative, um, I think, when going through those examinations. I, I'm not sure if you do have uh, any experience, a different experience with that. I do. And, and I I congratulate you for what you were doing there on Riverside. And I, I've seen it happen, you know, in some states. New Jersey would be a good example. Michigan would be a good example where the state police play a really key role um, in not only regulation and licensing and, and working on uh, AML issues, KYC issues. Um, I, I find that uh, a similar approach as to the, with regulators, the, the closer relationship you have with law enforcement uh, at the local jurisdictional level, the better. Um, you know, they're embedded into the properties. They're, you know, walking, um, you know, case in, uh, when we opened up in Springfield, state police have an office right there in, in the facility itself. Um, having that type of integrated relationship with law enforcement 
uh, is really vital to not only uh, AML and games protection issues, but also other type of criminal activity that can be thwarted if you have, you know, coordinated eyes and ears on the ground. The industry is always changing. And with the onslaught of technology really coming into this space, what are some of the developing innovations or shifts in the industry that you're excited about, Jim? Well, you know, anytime we could create a more seamless uh, relationship between a consumer and what he or she wants to consume, the better. Um, and reducing the friction points uh, and the time uh, to create that experience is technology plays a vital role, whether it's reducing the time to go through proper KYC protocols so that we can uh, bet online. Um, so it doesn't take seven, eight minutes. Maybe it takes a couple minutes. Um, reducing the time uh, and the ma massive amount of manpower that goes into background checking um, and try to innovate and uh, maybe standardize uh, the backgrounding uh, for um, for individuals within gaming companies using technologies, you know, on the floor um, in digital wallets. Um, and I think uh, blockchain is going to play, starting to play. Everyone's playing, uh, playing around with this right now, but will play a much greater role in the backbone of a lot of uh, the KYC efforts uh, going forward. So I guess overarching, anytime we can reduce friction points between a consumer uh, and uh, what he or she wants to consume in terms of entertainment or an employee in terms of what he or she needs to go through in order to remain compliant within an organization and have that organization itself remain compliant within the jurisdiction in which it operates is, is technology that is, I think, well welcome and well spent. I think I'm probably going to go take off my compliance hat for a second on this question, Dan, and, and um, more as a consumer, uh, you know, just growing up in Vegas, being around gaming, being around sports betting. I think I'm really excited by all the new business models I'm, I'm starting to see emerge, you know, with the, the, the betting exchanges that you're seeing come online in New Jersey. Um, you know, we're also seeing these kind of uh betting betting markets or, or secondhand markets almost like a like a ticket master um you know i had the pleasure of speaking with uh the, the founder of bet swap the other day and and this idea that you can resell your bets at, at any point in time um you know on their app on their marketplace you know maybe you made a futures bet for um the dolphins to you know win the super bowl or you know win win their division and while those odds were not as good when you made them, and so there was a really good payout associated with it, well, now they're three and zero, and and there's possibly some value in someone you know wanting to be able to buy that. So, it's just seeing all these different kind of angles on on sports betting and on iGaming that are that are starting to be introduced, and you know who knows which of these business models end up sustainable or not. Um, I think it's just kind of fun as a as a consumer and as Kind of a student of the industry, um, watching all these new models come into play and, and watching them compete with each other. 
I couldn't agree more. And in fact, in my role in this venture capital fund, we have it. We see so many of these exciting young companies, uh, similar to what you have mentioned. I was thinking about Sport Trade, for example. You mentioned exchanges in New Jersey where they're demystifying um, what is, you know, a a sports proposition plus 150 minus 150, and a lot of people don't even have any idea what that means. Um, and you know, instead setting it up more like an options contract where you can certainly understand that if the Yankees are favored over the Red Sox, it's gonna cost you $75 per $100 contract to bet on that game uh, for the Yankees to win. But if in the third inning, the Red Sox are pulling ahead, um, that the value of your, your bet is gonna go down and you can actually sell that, you can trade that bet up and down, depending on the outcome of the game, even in game, um, which is really exciting. There's there are companies that are catering to women in the gaming industry, where I, I find that also very fascinating. Um, and running into companies that are emerging into the DFS space, into not only parlay bets but uh, single proposition bets. Uh, there's a there's a tremendous world out there of, of innovation. A lot of these companies are going to survive. Um, many of them are going to be acquired um, by the large gaming operators over time. But it's where the innovation is, is really happening is in the venture space. Again, Jim, thanks for the time. And now that we're wrapping up, one last question. Are there any overall leadership lessons that you would share with our audience today? Well, that that, that could be its own podcast, probably. Uh, but, um, you know, in a nutshell, you know, what I've learned, sometimes the hard way, but what I've learned over now the three decades of, of working, um, four decades total of working, that um, you're only as good as the, the people in the organization, uh, whether all the years I was on Wall Street or certainly, you know, 23 years at MGM, uh, these organizations are are amalgam of men and women, and uh, you know, building up the right teams, motivating the teams in the right way, creating a culture of inclusiveness, uh, diverse thinking, uh, and you know, making sure that people feel their voices are heard. I, too often, I've found in companies that the board you know, has the right set of values. You know, they want to be good corporate citizens. They want to be environmental stewards. They want to have a diverse and inclusionary workforce. Uh, but those those uh, core values are not permeated throughout the organization. They generally get hung up at the middle management level. And so if the middle managers of organizations don't embody the same set of core values as you would expect um, that any good organization should have. The hourly employees or the lower level uh, management employees are just not gonna feel it. And that's where the rubber hits the road. So I suggest investing uh, heavily in middle management. That's where uh, they are the leaders of people. That's where most of the interactions between employees happen. I would encourage people to be courageous um, and uh, make sure that they know their voice is being heard. And in this industry that we're in, 
you know, maybe adopting a philosophy of stoicism a little bit would be a good idea is that there are so many things that are going to be thrown at you that um, you don't have any control over in a very dynamic industry such as gaming. Um, but you do have control over how you deal with what is thrown at you. Um, and you do have control over your own actions. So I would say that the lessons that I've learned sometimes the hard way is uh, to listen to people, to encourage people to speak up, to not to drown out uh, their voices, listen more than you talk, um, get courageous in the way you lead uh, organizations and allow people uh, to be led and to lead in their own ways, maybe develop a little stoicism along the way so that you can deal with whatever it is that comes your way that's unexpected. Thanks again for joining myself, Devin, Sean Topshi, and our special guest, Jim Murin. Visit connectify.com. That's K-I-N-E-C-T-I-F-Y.com to learn more about today's topics. You can support our show even more by leaving us a rating wherever you download your podcast or by sharing Connectify conversations with gaming industry leaders like yourself. Until our next conversation, always remember to minimize risk and maximize your efficiency.